Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koister in the History Department, and I'm joined by... Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. And I am very excited to introduce this week's guest, uh, a professor of history, Jen McNabb, who is at the University of Northern Iowa and also serves as the head of department. She has a series of courses on the Renaissance, and then she also has a course on witchcraft that you can listen to on Audible. So uh, we're going to talk for the next 35, 40 minutes or so about witchcraft, and she'll make some suggestions about what to read. So I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Jen McNabb, what a pleasure. What a, and indeed a huge pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Uh, and so you have put out this fantastic series on the history of witchcraft. And I'm just wondering for our listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to the entire lecture series, what are some of the favorite themes that you love to talk about when you um, teach the history of witchcraft with your students? Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I find witchcraft fascinating and most people do as well because it seems to be a relic from a dim and distant past where people behaved irrationally and lashed out without a great deal of forethought or evidence at people they determined to be different from themselves, other um, with some pretty devastating consequences. One of the things I always talk to my students about is witch hunting without witches. It is a concept, of course, this notion of witch hunting that has continued into our own time. It's a sort of plastic concept that gets remolded around other incidents. And it's it now stands in for kind of a, um, a fraudulent legal process. That's a witch hunt when you seek to damage someone's reputation without any grounds. I mean, read the newspapers today and you're going to see the term witch hunting thrown around with great frequency. So I like to explore with students the, the sort of timelessness of some of the key dimensions of witch hunting. I particularly find witch hunting fascinating as an early modernist, as someone who studies the early modern centuries in the Western tradition because it is such a fascinating way to explore all of the key developments of the period. It's the perfect storm, yeah. right? I always talk about witchcraft as sort of a recipe. We don't get the European witch hunts without a specific and lengthy list of ingredients that show a cultural tradition in crisis, in transition, so it's like the perfect nexus of all of these early modern developments. It's about law. Mm-hmm. You don't get witch hunts without the criminalization of witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So we see leaders of various communities all over the European territories deciding that there is a problem 
and that law is the way to fix it. Mm-hmm. So I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's about state building. Again, you can make law, you can say witches are evil and they should be executed for their diabolical pecs and for their acts of harmful magic, maleficia. <laughs> but unless there is an infrastructure to enforce the law, then you don't have hunts that become chain reaction and widespread and lead to loss of life. You might say, ah, Dr. McNabb, what about the church? Like the church could do that. And the church would have a vested interest in witchcraft activities. And that was certainly the case. So we're going to add religion as another factor here. But let's remember that the church is not supposed to be in the business of killing people. They're about saving immortal souls, and they certainly partnered with secular authorities, but it was secular authorities that surged into the lead. Mm-hmm. I like to be a myth buster when yeah. I'm teaching witchcraft because a lot of students come in and say, yeah, yeah, witch hunting, that's the Inquisition, right? No one suspects it. Um, yeah, that's, that's an inquisitorial kind of thing. And the, the reality is that is not the case. Mm. Witch hunting was relatively subdued in the territories that we most associate with allegiance to the Pope during the days of the Reformation. And so it's, it's a common mistake to imagine an intolerant Catholic church at the forefront of this movement. So let's return to the issue of religion. Witch hunting is made possible by this fusion of two different belief systems with regard to wielders of supernatural power. (laughs) One strand is this notion that there were mortals who could use supernatural powers to cause harm, right? The other strand is that there were mortals who had thrown in their lot with the devil. So maleficium, harmful magic, fusing with diabolism, devil worship, compact with the devil, partnership to work his evil will. That happens in the 15th century. All of the current scholarship is pointing us to the early part of the 15th century as a new fusion of those ideas. So you'd think, okay, in the 1400s, then we're off to the races. I mean, we're going to see the hunts really start blowing up. Doesn't happen. (sighs) There are some trials It kind of happens in fits and starts. There are frustrated witch hunters who are trying to bring witches to justice and have a hard time selling that um, to the the local magistrates. It's into that context that we would put, for example, the famous witch hunting manual, Malleus Maleficarum, the hammer of witches, um, produced in the 1480s by a frustrated, failed uh, witch hunter. So, of course, what does he do but put pen to paper and um, tell us all about how witch hunting should work. Right. Uh, And so that's often pointed to in the 1480s as the official start date of the witch hunts. That's now been backed up quite a bit to the early decades of the century. But it's kind of a muted response. Once we get this conglomerate picture, it's not until the 16th century 
sort of the halfway point of the 16th century that we begin to get really significant witch hunting in a number of different geographic territories. What explains that gap? The energies of the Reformation. Mm. The kinds of religious anxieties that people might have displaced onto witches from the 1520s to the 1560s, people are arguing about other things. Mm -hmm. And the presses are churning out other kinds of texts. They're talking about the, uh, the teachings of Luther and Calvin. Um, we've got a lot of energy in trying to explain piety and religiosity and the devil, right? Mm -hmm. The reformers were really interested in the devil and his works. But they weren't necessarily making witches a focus. I'm about to stop talking here, but I, I, I've got to throw another ingredient into the mix. Well, there's two more. The first is this, technology. And this is a fun one because that's not exactly something that people normally associate with the 15th and 16th centuries. Ooh, high tech. But this is the birth of print in this time period, the birth not only of print for elites to wax eloquent in their lengthy tomes for each other, but also the emergence of popular print, commercial print, things put out to sell. Witches, pretty darn sensational. Mm -hmm. I always tell my students, imagine the checkout line at uh, Target or your local supermarket. What draws your attention? Oh, it's celebrity tales. It's these salacious accounts of various misbehaving people. That's what witchcraft pamphlets were. Ballads and broadsides relating these fantastic tales. Of course they were going to sell. And there's this interesting dialogue that exists as far as we can understand it between people's sort of landscape belief system of witchcraft and print they are seeding one another. The more sensational things are becoming in narrative form, the more sensational people's relations in court as they're giving territory or giving testimony become. So we see this cross seeding between popular print and popular belief, as difficult as that is for us to penetrate since peasants weren't sharing their deepest and darkest thoughts and diaries that we've uncovered anywhere. So print is really important to put into the mix. Even the educated elites, they created this genre of print called demonology, right? The ology of demons sounds very sophisticated and cerebral. Um, and these are largely theologians talking about what the Bible said concerning witchcraft and really probing the diabolism piece of the witchcraft equation. And here's where I'm gonna bring it home, the socioeconomic tensions of the time. This is a super complicated subject, but the early modern centuries we can identify as a period of proto-capitalism. Many of the older medieval ideals of community were put 
intention. Now, I, I'm not going to be overly rosy about the Middle Ages. We have this sort of rose-colored glasses idea of peasants maybe linking arms, dancing around poles to celebrate solstice and whatever. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of interpersonal tension in medieval communities, but they did have to rely on one another in some pretty profound ways to make a go of it as a village. In the early modern period, we have some new sensibilities setting in about land usage, about animal pasture, about acquisition of personal wealth. Mm -hmm. And that leads to some new definitions of what's mine versus what is common and some challenging times in terms of resources. It's a time of famine and war and intense competition. So people saw others not necessarily as survival partners, but as rivals. And we know that witchcraft accusations were often born of competition over resources. Mm -hmm. The socio part of that recipe is also bound up pretty powerfully with gender. You knew I was going to drop that one in, right? Because even casual listeners likely know that the stereotype is that witches were women. And a lot of scholars have tried to tease out the connection between gender and accusations of witchcraft. There's been some fascinating scholarship that suggests witchcraft is about misogyny, mm -hmm. the product of a woman-hating time in, in history, where sort of um, as the, the tension point, we've also got a lot of powerful women mm -hmm. around. We have queens, regnat, queens ruling in this time period. And so it's been suggested that there's this tension of having women in charge as leading to a backlash, mm -hmm. um, trying to control women in other capacities. The spanner in the works there is that it's often women accusing other women. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. What's going on there? We might imagine, as, as I think there's good evidence for, that women accused other women in part because they found it powerful to police mm. others in their gender. Mm. I'm the best woman because I know what womanhood is and she doesn't embody it. She is a problem. She's a cursor. She's a causer of harm. She's a drain on our local community. If I point the finger at her, that's a problem then I am doing my best to uphold good order and proper standards of behavior. I have bought in mm -hmm. to those standards formulated by men, mm -hmm. but I'm empowered nonetheless. I'm going to court. I'm going into this institutional forum and I'm telling my stories and people are listening to me. That is powerful mm -hmm. in the early modern period because there were fewer opportunities for women to do that. Mm -hmm. So there's my super long-winded ingredient list yeah. for early modern witchcraft and why I think it's such a great teaching topic because you just get to burrow into so many aspects of early modern life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in 15 minutes, 
actually I'm impressed at how short you kept that because in 15 minutes <laughs> you got into kind of the highlights of what, what struck me as I was listening to your podcast is just the nuance, right? All of us who are casual, um, you know, casually interested in the history of witchcraft do tend to think, oh, it's the church. Oh, it's gender without thinking about nation building and the socioeconomic um, things. I, I remember going to Salem as a little kid and being like, I don't understand what's going on here. It's very kitschy. Um, it's very, very Halloween-y. Um, but, and I know it's connected to women and maybe to race, but it's just, it's so, so deep and confusing. Well, and the Salem episode held up to the light is one of those witch hunting episodes that seems even particularly bizarre, in part because of how it's been memorialized. Um, Salem, if it's been a while since you've been there, it's a fascinating study in contrast. It's a community that really you see struggling with its own history. What what do we make of this? Well, we can make a lot of money. Um, This is a place that people come for the kitsch, you know, you um, buy the mugs. Uh, I was tried at Salem and things of that sort. Get a cool T-shirt. Um, you know, I came to Salem and escaped with my life or something like this. Um, so there's certainly a sort of morbid fascination about the place. But Salem is also home to the Peabody Essex Museum. That is one of the real first rate museums in the country for the Atlantic trade, um, for... Um, a whole host of, I'm, I'm walking through the rooms in my mind right now, um, and once again, being kind of impressed by um, that world-class collection. And I think Salem has uh, tried to present itself as this really cultured city, but how do you grapple with the loss of life that happened there, the rank intolerance that that led to such suffering in um, such a, a catastrophic way. Salem is also interesting because it had its mea culpa moment afterwards in a way that many of the European communities never stopped and took stock and said, hey, something, something terrible happened here. We, we participated in something horrible in big chain reaction hunts that sometimes took place in municipal areas in Europe, people, you can feel in the writings of the aftermath, a real, a real sobering sense set in. And at Salem, that's very much on display by people who apologized, by people who wrote explanations for how things got so out of control um, and did so in a very thoughtful and probing fashion um, that I think is character of the the Puritan background, right? That sin has happened. And if it's ever going to be dealt with, it has to be examined. It has to be brought into the light and thought about and and meditated over, prayed on and um, articulated. So Salem is, is a great visit to this very day. I can't um, encourage it enough, both for understanding the history of witchcraft, but also for examining the legacies of popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a great place to, to go, absolutely. 
Jen, I was uh, mentioning to our colleagues that um, I had listened to your episode on Salem, particularly, and of course I did, right? Because I teach U.S. history. But one of the things I was really struck by, and I didn't know much about, was the fact that you kind of set up something that happened, I think, um, Stanford 1692, Stratford 1692, as of what could have happened and didn't happen at Salem. I don't remember the town. I'm so sorry. Well, Salem is really unique in the scope of its hunts. And again, as as my recipe for Europe um, sort of set forward, Salem is that perfect storm of a whole host of factions. Uh, there's religious tension. There's certainly socioeconomic crises there. There's war. Um, some of the most recent scholarship, I just taught a graduate seminar on Salem last spring, and some of the, the most recent work that's been produced has really put a light on the conflict with the indigenous peoples and some really intense episodes of violence, particularly in Maine. Mm. Salem was home to a number of what I'm just going to go ahead and use 21st century parlance refugees. Yeah. People who'd lost their homes, who'd seen family members killed right in front of them sometimes. Um, And those people brought the nightmares with them. Uh, And now I think there's a lot more focus on what those crises brought to that sort of smolder, I almost said cauldron, uh, not the term I ought to be throwing around loosely when talking about witchcraft, but the the sort of collection of um, issues and people's in Salem Village and Salem Town. Um, So certainly we want to hold up Salem as this sort of unique circumstance. There was another witch witch hunting episode that was um, sort of aborted in the exact same year um, when people in the village were very skeptical of a young servant girl's accounts and tried in methods that we might think a little funky um, from a 21st century perspective, but were very rational um, in the 17th century to catch her out. Mm-hmm. Like, let's try to see if there's any real evidence behind these tales, behind these fits. Um, she's sort of traded in this very physical experience of bewitchment. Mm-hmm. And there was a, there was a lot of um, healthy skepticism about what was causing her physical, um, di- apparent physical distress. And so in that community, you see people rallying around the accused and saying, hold on, hold on. Um, this seems out of character. And what can we do to examine this episode in a a rational fashion? We're scattered episodes of of accusations of witchcraft throughout the colonies. Um, There was uh, uh, one that was slightly more extensive in the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. 
But by and large, witch hunting is not something that really sinks into the colonial experience, but in a few really high profile episodes. Let's remember on the the sort of chronological spectrum, the later 17th century, things are wrapping up Mm -hmm. in a number of areas of Europe, although Central and Eastern Europe wouldn't experience the the most extensive of their hunting activities until after that date. That's another one of those myth-busting ideas that as soon as science comes, everyone just gives up witchcraft and they realize it's backward and superstition and that, you know, people were sick because of disease. Mm -hmm. That is, there's this really protracted period of coexistence between the coming of scientific reason and belief in in witches. And that's tough. But people didn't go to bed one night believing in witches and then wake up the next morning and say, science. (laughs) Uh, So there's a lot of overlap there. And so we have this kind of protracted decline that could be interrupted by things like war or famine or particular feuds in villages or towns. There were so many things that could kick it off. And that's why we have witchcraft dying in fits and starts. And we do want to think too about the colonial territories as offshoots of their European parents. Mm-hmm. Right. So people came to the quote unquote new world with very old world views. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that the chronology plays out the way that it does. Yeah. And Jen, just because I'm curious, I, because you have the long view for how long would you say is witchcraft dying out even as sort of the scientific method is advancing? Is that like a period of 100 years? Is 150? Is it shorter than that approximately? Depends on which population we're talking about, right? And even for the elites, it's a, there's a long period of overlap. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're talking about beliefs in witchcraft, that's 20th century people are being accused of of witchcraft um well right down to the present um witchcraft has many faces um witchcraft in a global perspective i try to get my students when they're taking a class on witchcraft to have on their radar um accounts of witches in other parts of the world down to the present day right people being um seized as witch doctors in Africa, um, even down to, you know, name the year, um, name the month, you can find accounts all the way down to the present. So beliefs in witches are incredibly powerful. They're as old as human society. It's incredibly provocative, Mm -hmm. this idea that there are powerful people in tune with natural and supernatural forces in ways that allow them to affect the material world. Certainly that's um, an attractive notion for the people who propel themselves into those positions of of power. And I I do wanna throw sort of a curveball here, again, thinking from a myth-busting perspective. We tend to imagine that witches were disempowered. They were accused 
And then, you know, their lives could be forfeit as a result. Witchcraft was too dangerous, too hot to handle. If you will. <laughs> Who would want to be a witch? <laughs> it's clear that some people traded in this notion of having power. It was a way to get people to do what you wanted to. You know, hey, I'm, I'm hungry right now. And I'd really advise you to give me some bread and some ale. Not saying there could be consequences for those things not happening. In other words, people were scaring their neighbors a little bit under these maybe implied threats of potential activity that we would say is associated with witchcraft. Some women owned it. Mm -hmm. We have to be careful about the evidence we use on this front because it's important to remember, and this is something that students sometimes have a really tough time wrapping their heads around, how do you explain confessions? Yeah. And not just, yes, it's true, I'm, I'm guilty, I am a witch, but the stories they told, these unbelievable tales, yes, I'm a witch, and yes, it's true. I fly on my broom off to the woods and gather with hundreds of others performing evil rituals and boiling things in cauldrons to make various ointments, etc., etc. How do you explain that as a confession? I think the, the word we're searching for here is often torture. That under duress or threat of same, people responded in ways that they thought their interrogators would be receptive to. Leading questions. Is it true that you converge with others in the woods uh, around these magic rituals? Sure. <laughs> you want to hear? Will that make the pain stop? Now, at that point, it's sort of easy to throw out the entire early modern legal system as full of foolishness. They did try to build in a safeguard for false confessions. They might have a confession under the application of torture. They always wanted it repeated mm -hmm. without torture. But again, we have to ask ourselves, if the threat of the resumption of torture is lingering, how free is that second freely given confession? There is right now what I find to be a, a really intriguing strand of scholarship that's recasting witchcraft, both physical manifestations of bewitchment to all the way to confessions through a medical lens. Like, are we talking about some kind of bodily fit that exhibited as bewitch bewitchment to early moderns, but might well be a physical ailment? Right. And maybe some of these older women who confessed to fantastic works, maybe not with torture, could be suffering from dementia, could be suffering from deep depression. Um, there are all kinds of medical conditions. You know, we're in the middle right now, I think, of uh, what is very identifiably a mental health crisis, um, both on college campuses and off. Um, this is something that the, the general population is dealing with as well. 
why couldn't there have been mental health crises in the early modern period for certain populations? Um, and so I think all of these things add richness to our understanding of the past. Now, it's incredibly difficult to play the 21st century physician or psychologist and explain away the early modern witch hunting phenomenon, but it's another chapter to the book um, that really explains our, our understanding as moderns of something that's often really difficult to wrap our sensibilities around. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm, I've got my eye on the time. Okay. And we want to make sure we ask you um, a couple of other questions, so... Sure. Carrie, do you want to do you want to shoot yeah. her? So uh, this is bookish at Bethel. So we like books. So if you were going to say to one of our listeners who just you piqued their curiosity and they'd like to do some reading, do you have books that you would recommend on um, the history of witchcraft in the Western world? Sure. I love teaching a book by a scholar named Jim Sharp called um, Witchcraft in Early Modern England. It's part of a series of texts that has a brief narrative, gives you a brief overview of the history, and then includes excerpts of documents. So I love that in books. When you're given enough to ground yourself in the topic, in the period, in the major strands of historiography, because Sharp does that as well. Witchcraft is a subject that's been extensively written upon. It fascinates professional historians as much as it does popular audiences. And so Sharp helps navigate some of the historiographical history of the subject, who's said what. Now, it's an older book. It was published in 2001. Um, Professor Sharp, if you're out there, give us a second edition. Uh, there's been so much great stuff published since then, but I really love that document section. It's not lengthy. I think it's 30 pages of documentary excerpts, but it like is the greatest hits. Nice. It's a little bit of demonology. It's a little bit of court records. It's a little bit of sermons. It's a little bit about law and governance. So you've got all of those strands there. And as you're reading the narrative chapters, Sharp will say, document two. Nice. Like, all right, cool. Let me go check that out. So you see this sort of scholarly approach backed up immediately by some evidence. So I'm a, a great big fan of that. I'm also a great big fan of a book by a scholar named Brian Levac called um, The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe. That one is in its fourth edition. And gosh, that fourth edition is either the publication date has got to be post 2019. Mm -hmm. um, it's the text that I've assigned my own students this semester. And he gives a, a really fantastic widespread European overview. At the same time as he dives down in a few chapters, like here's witch hunting in England, France, the Mediterranean, German-speaking lands. So you do get a sense of that divergence 
of witch hunting. I mean, you know, there is no one size fits all model. And I think Levesque captures that very nicely. He synthesizes this big picture view and then lets you see some of the differences. So big fans of both of those texts. Nice. Jen, I'm going to ask you the unfair question, which is, I know that you teach in a humanities program at the University of Northern Iowa. Mm -hmm. Let's say you were going to join me, you're going to join Carrie here at Bethel University. What text would you insist upon that we use in our humanities course? I'm not joining your team unless you use. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. You know, when you put it as you did there at the end, you kind of put me in a rough spot because the, the reality is there's such richness I know. In the Western humanities tradition that it was unfair. It's so unfair. And I'm going to respond to your unfairness by being a little unfair myself. So I teach um, in our sequence here at UNI, I teach humanities to 1300 to 1800. That's uh, our big breakdown in the middle of our three course sequence. I open the class with Chaucer's Wife of Bath's Tale. Love it. (laughs) Um, It's fabulous. It's subject to so many different interpretations. The Wife of Bath herself in the hands of Chaucer is such a colorful character. Um, She's either girl power or very much not depending on your interpretive lens and her tale is the same way. It's either women winning or women being manipulated. And it's so fun to talk through that set of interpretations with students. And as soon as they get behind one, I'm team girl power interpretation. I'm like, well, let me give you this food for thought. (laughs) Um, And so then the, then the debate, spirals off in another direction. So I think it's a really fascinating text. And I I will say it's become even more interesting as a teaching text since COVID-19. When I used to teach Canterbury Tales in the wake of the Black Death, students didn't understand the context. And our present day realities have really changed the way they discuss this book. So that's a fantastic one. That's brilliant, by the way. Yeah, it is. Uh, try it. You'll like it. Um, <laughs> those out you who are, are listening, you too, go take a gander. Um, at the end of the class, I really like the interesting narrative of Alato Equiano. Um, otherwise known as Gustavus Vasa. It's a slave narrative, um, a narrative about a, a slave who was freed, converts to Christianity, marries an English woman. So much in that tale that comments on the 17th century writ large, where's the enlightenment? Where is Christian piety in this text? Where is violence? It's all there. The middle passage is there. The text has been challenged in terms of its authenticity. Um, Is this 
really the life story of a single person. What do we know about Gustavus Vasa? What are his identities? You'll notice I've given him two. Mm-hmm. Olato Equiano, his African name, and Gustavus Vasa, his Europeanized name given to him by one of his masters, but one that he adopts as his identity moving forward. It's such a wonderful read for students to consider race, and identities and so many other aspects of 17th, 18th century life um, at the end of a humanities class, because it's very easy to walk away from our Hume too at the height of the enlightenment and the coming of modernity. Okay, yes, there was bloodshed with the French Revolution, but here we throw off the yoke of the old world and embrace a bright new future. There's a lot of tough stuff mm-hmm. that still needs to be examined. You, you can't leave humanities to with this sunshiny outlook for the future. There's a great deal of complexity just as we came in to Hume 2 with complexity. It's there at the end. Mm-hmm. So I really like that to bookend my own course, but I would say Bethel needs to get them on the syllabi. All right. They're not there. Fantastic. <laughs> Well, and Jen, we always um, also like to ask um, our guests, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading for fun these days, Jen McNabb? Oh, I am such an indiscriminate reader. There are so many half-read books. Um, I'm one of those people who can be reading 15 um, books at the same time and can sort of turn to any one of them, depending on the mood that I'm in. I'll give you three (laughs) right now. One is Hamnet. Um, the, the book about Shakespeare, um, actually Shakespeare's wife, um, it's a fascinating retelling of the Shakespeare story. His family, Hamnet was, um, Shakespeare's young son who died, I, I think aged 11. Um, and it, is it Maggie O'Farrell, I believe is the author. Um, the book has a lot of buzz and it's, it's wonderful. It's so atmospheric. It's such a rich read. I'm also in the 16th century fiction, and this is so rare for me. I never read fiction from the period I research because I find most of it really clunky and inauthentic. But I'm reading Hilary Mantel's third book of the Thomas Cromwell trilogy. This is the Wolf Hall, um, Bring Up the Bodies, and The Mirror in the Light. Um, and those books are fantastic as well. So I'm halfway through Anne's Lost Her Head. Um, <laughs> Jane's, um, I think, uh, about to be pregnant where I am right now. And Cromwell is still in favor. I wonder what happens. Hmm. Um, and the third book I will give you is a mystery. Um, I'm reading a mystery. Um, uh, I think it's called The Case of the Frangipani Tree, set in 1930s Singapore. I love mystery novels. Uh, any good historian usually does, right? We're on the hunt for clues, and then we're trying to draw conclusions. I mean, detective novels are fantastic for sharpening up those skills. So um, it's a it's a fun mystery um, that uh, a colleague turned me on to. And so those are three of the dozen or so that I'm, I'm currently in the middle of. Depending I love on it. Food, depending love on it. food. <laughs> Carrie Pathley, what are you, what's on your nightstand? 
Well, first, I have to thank Jen for saying that you have a whole bunch of half-read books because that is my <laughs> approach too. So like, awesome. because we every week have to answer what's on our nightstand, mine tend to cycle in and out depending on what I'm in the mood for. So I am about to finish Terry Pratchett's Jingo, which is keeping me up every night laughing. And then I am just starting a book called True Enough um, by... Catherine Elgin, I think her name is, and it's on art and epistemology. Um, so what is, what is the connection between truth and the way that we use various epistemological methods to seek truth and then art and the sort of truth that art might give us. So I'm very excited about that. Right. And I am, of course, still slogging my way through this novel that a colleague of ours sort of kind of recommended, um, Raintree County by Ross Lockridge Jr. It's sort of you just said that's a slow, a slow read. It's also like a bajillion pages. So, <laughs> but I'm one of these people that once I start something, I feel like I can't just not finish it. But I will just say I am skipping several pages at a time. Hey, since this is a, a bookish podcast, can I leave listeners with Dr. McNabb's hard won conclusions about books? Sure. Life is too short to finish a bad book. Yes. It took me so long to come to that conclusion. I'm such a completionist. I'm like, no, I will fight through this book if it takes everything that's in me. Life is too short for that, my friends. Find the books that enrich you, the books that, um, that challenge you, the books that intrigue you. And spend your energy there. Walk away from the others. Run sometimes. And you know what? Give the book a second life. Give it away. Take it to the goodwill. Pass it on to someone who can appreciate it because someone's out there for whom that book has meaning. Mm -hmm. But you're not that person and you're bigger than that. Oh, those are fantastic <laughs> words. Sam mm -hmm. is, is clapping silently as he is listening. <laughs> yes. And I think on, on that note, we can say you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bye.